Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. On this week of the podcast, we're going to discuss metabolic syndrome in athletes. Metabolic syndrome, also known as Syndrome X and the Deadly Quartet, is the co-occurrence of risk factors for both type 2 diabetes and heart disease, such as elevated blood pressure, high blood sugar, high cholesterol, and increased abdominal fat. Numerous studies have found relatively high incidences of metabolic syndrome in sport. The prevalence for metabolic syndrome in this study overall was 31.8%. Again, the average age was just 21 years old. That's wild. (laughs) But they've been training for seven years, so they've been very active throughout the majority of their adolescence and into early adulthood. And this outstrips the global rate of metabolic syndrome in this highly active uh, sort of population, particularly open-ended sports, where the bigger the athlete, the better. In the unlimited sports, almost half of women had metabolic syndrome, 49%, whereas 0% of the women in limited sports had met criteria for metabolic syndrome. Do athletes have a higher risk of metabolic syndrome than the general population? Are athletes under pressure to get bigger, perhaps to the detriment of their health? As sports continue to grow and occupy larger roles in society, I think the incentives and selection processes for sports are also expanding and becoming more specific. The big get bigger, the small get smaller, and the freaks get freakier. And if so, what do we do about it? All that and more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bells of Steel's mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscle for your hard-earned dollar. Bells of Steel has a ton of cool products for outfitting your home gym, including calibrated iron plates, air bikes, belt squat machines, racks, and much, much more. If for whatever reason you don't love your new equipment, Bells of Steel offers a 30-day money-back guarantee to return your order, and they'll even pay the shipping back. Check them out at bellsofsteel.us and use the code BBM23 to get 10% off selected items. This podcast is also brought to you by Viori. Viori makes super high quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. I've also been wearing their Rise Tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viori also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to their website, viori.com backslash barbell, to get 20% off your first order. All right, we're here on episode 218 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast with the second most handsome doctor in North America. He's back, Dr. Austin Baraki. 
What's going on, dude? Hey, uh, I guess I enjoyed a, a couple weeks off where Derek subbed in for me, but uh, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> He's back, Tag. He's back. Everything going okay? You're yeah. all right over there? Things are all right in the hospital uh, at the moment, and, and things are cruising. So, To be clear for the listeners, he's not physically in the hospital. Austin is fine. Yes, but he is I am act- actively responsible for what is happening in the hospital for this two weeks straight. <laughs> yeah, okay. But he is, he is in good health as yes. far as to, to the best of our knowledge. Yes. Uh, before we pop into this week's podcast, we have some new content on not only our website, but also on our YouTube channel. So on the website, we've got a bevy of new articles. How does exercise affect headaches? How does exercise affect liver function tests? Does SI joint movement cause hip and low back pain? All of those are linked in the description below, or you can just go over to our website, barbellmedicine.com, and uh, get some brain gains. Got a new YouTube video. I was just lamenting this to you prior to recording. (laughs) I did a training vlog where I was mic'd up. So DJI is a little, they make drones. They make some other camera and audio equipment. They sent me this, like, it's a wireless lavalier thing. Okay. It's kind of nice. I was like, oh, this will be handy. And, you know, when we want to record something and Tom's not nearby to like set up the, our nice sure. audio equipment. Uh, so yeah, it works super well, but I was like, maybe I'll do a training vlog mic'd up. This will be fun. Cause you know, you watch like stick and ball sports and when they're mic'd up or what, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like exercise is far less interesting being mic'd up. Now, I'm not dissuading people from watching the training vlog. I think it's I think it's good, especially because you get to hear a lot of things that I'm thinking about while I'm doing the training. And that may be useful if you're, I don't know, interested in that, <laughs> I, I think. But I also think it's like the weirdest ASMR thing you could possibly be into. Like it's right by my mouth and I'm like lifting. And then also oh, so like, you hear a bunch of bunch of <clears throat> weird. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> And I'm like, why am I so breathy? <laughs> I was actually, so the other thing is like, I was wearing a t-shirt, right? And so the mic is right there. And like, if I'm doing like incline dumbbell bench, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to smash this thing with a dumbbell. Well, that mm-hmm. didn't, that didn't happen, but I did jam the mic between like my fat chin and my chest. And I was like, so all you hear is like, <laughs> like, like a <laughs> pulsatile flow or something through my <laughs> <laughs> IJ or something. So I don't know well, what you're into, but I guess some people might be into that, you know, maybe just uh, another way to expand, expand the audience here. <laughs> that's right. People are like this ASMR. I didn't know I needed this. But anyway, that's linked in the description below. Check that out over on YouTube. You search Barbell Medicine. We've got, I didn't know this. We have 275 videos on our YouTube channel. So there's you've like, put in, you've put in a lot of work, man. There's likely we, we've put in a lot uh, the collectively. There's likely to be something on our channel that interests you. So, you know, Check that out if you're into watching more than just listening. Uh, we also have a bunch of new seminars that are going to be available for people to attend these live in-person seminars. So we're going to be in Brooklyn, New York in May for our two-day health and performance seminar. That's myself, Dr. Baraki, the rest of the Barbell Medicine crew. You'll learn uh, how to lift, how to program, how uh, health and fitness sort of where they intersect and what to do about it. That's our, our main seminar we've been doing for a few years. It's We constantly update it, so that will be there in May uh, at uh, CrossFit South Brooklyn. In Bozeman, Montana, we're going to have a two-day pain and rehab seminar. That's uh, Dr. Derek Miles and the rest of our pain and rehab crew. That's in June. We'll be in Untamed at Untamed Strength, Dr. Thrall's gym in Sacramento, California. That's going to be in October. should be up on the website soon. And then in January, we're going down under. That was a very terrible Australian accent. I actually don't know. <laughs> Joe would be ashamed. He would be ashamed. But honestly, he's not Aussie. He's from 
uh, Tasmania. He's Tassie. 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 Yeah. Right. So I don't know, like, <laughs> was that a Kiwi accent? Did I do a Tassie accent? I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe a Bogan version of <laughs> Australian accent. But yeah, we're going to be there in January. That should be on the website also uh, pretty soon. So if you want to join us at one of our live in-person seminars, those will be available for you. And last but not least, obviously, our app is still available. A new function, new update is coming for our clients. Now they can upload or they should be able to very, very soon. I, as soon as the update gets pushed through, I think it's there. But uh, I never know, like when I get the notification, like, oh, the app's been updated, like, oh, is this the one? Uh, they can upload videos. They can take videos and then upload them into the app and it'll store them. So if you wanted to keep track of like, oh, how's my squat doing? And you could just have video after video after video and your coach gets it or whatever. So yeah, we're going to roll that out first for clients. And then eventually the, if you're on the app, using one of our templates, uh, you know, whatever, you'll be able to store video on there. So Sick. I think- yeah, sick. I think that'll be useful. I have Any- a. I mean, I can go back years and still find. Not that I don't video like every single session, but definitely I have accumulated some videos from from years past that um, can be interesting to look back on, or various PRs, or like looking back and being like, "Man, that was a horrific looking set," or whatever the case is. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so interesting. It's like it seems like anything that I videoed before, maybe like 2015. It's like whatever I happen to video it on. Doesn't matter if it's GoPro on my phone or whatever it's like i took it with a potato yeah it's like 244p yeah Yeah. (laughs) why are there why is it so blurry and i'm like the technology must have just rapidly advanced or something yeah yeah uh anything new with you any other life updates you want to share with the class uh just working teaching um doing this stuff my quad that i mentioned on the last time i was on is significantly improved but not 100 percent. so i'm i'm deadlifting my deadlift training is uh, the programming is essentially back to normal i'm not having any issues like pushing the bar off the floor squat is still a little slow to come back and then yeah that's about it just chilling chilling i uh i'm i'm not yet interested in doing a powerlifting meet like it hasn't I haven't made, you know, the necessary steps to go sign up for a meet or whatever, uh-huh. but let's just say the thought has re-entered the chat only because like pre pre contemplation, pre pre contemplation. <laughs> well, only because like, okay. So, so let's say that you were just doing your normal training, right. And like the weight on the bar for, you were supposed to do a set of four at RP eight or something for squats. And it ended up being like five fifty. Yeah. And you'd be like, I'm in pretty decent shape. Well, <laughs> I'm kind of curious what I would do at a meet. And so like, yeah, my, my numbers are like pretty high up there and I'm not really training directly for that. So I'm kind of like, should I take advantage of these things right now or forever hold my peace? So we'll see. I think if I just delay this, you know, making a decision for a few weeks, something bad's going to happen and then I won't have to make a decision. <laughs> Either do that or keep training and turn your, uh, you know, prior one rep PRs into, you know, sixes. Okay, what do you think would be more impressive? Okay. <laughs> what do you think would be more impressive? If I were to pull 675, so seven plates for a triple, which would be an all-time PR, or pull 740 for a single, which would be a two-pound all-time PR and then 13 pounds heavier than my meat PR. Mm, I mean, I think that the triple is probably the better performance. I think that you pulling 740 would probably be the more satisfying thing to do. The but. only, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. However, it would just be so ugly on the bar. It's seven plates plus a 25 on each side. 
uh, plus a five and a two and a half. It just looks terrible. Like no part. <laughs> and when kilos, it looks even less impressive. And I'm just like, ah, it doesn't like if it was six or seven sixty five or whatever it was. Sure, you know, sure. Eight yeah, plates. Yeah. I think uh, you know that makes me think back to when I pulled. I think I did pull seven forty five, and I was actually using all pound plates except I had one pair of twenty five kilo plates on it oh, too. Yeah, yeah. And I was meticulous with the math to make sure I wasn't, you know, rounding it wrong, but it definitely looked a little weird. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, this is aesthetically displeasing. It's actively <laughs> making making me yeah. So we'll see. I don't know. This is my I have a deload week this is the last week. I'm gonna do anything like kind of heavy, I think, before the next block. So we'll see what happens. Stay tuned to the next training vlog. Maybe I'll be mic'd up for a set, you know, six seventy five triple or something. <laughs> and all you hear is you hear like my solar plexus just (laughs) getting signaled all right so let's pop into this week's podcast we're gonna talk about metabolic syndrome what it is um what it means prognostically uh the incidence between the general population versus athletes why athletes may have a relatively high incidence of it what to do about it so first off let's start with what is metabolic syndrome now before i actually get into the definition austin are you actually, do you see this on pe- patients' charts when they come in the, into, I almost said come into the gym, when they come into the hospital, like, oh, this patient has a diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Do you see that frequently? I would say it's uncommon uh, compared to the incidence of patients who just have all of the individual components of it on their chart. So most people just tend to list out the components separately. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I actually use the term for convenience when I want to summarize that, yeah, they have all these things. Uh, mm-hmm. But typically, you know, if I want to be most accurate, then I'm actually listing out which of them they have and their severity and things like that. But yeah, it's not unheard of. It's just not super common to use the term um, in my hospitalized patients. Yeah. All right. So let's pop into the definition here. So two things to start. One, there is no set definition. Uh, Two, there are a few different uh, recommendations as far as diagnosing it from various different health organizations, but the adult treatment panel three, which is also referred to as ATP three from the national cholesterol education panel NSEP. So is the most common. It tends to uh, focus primarily on the identification of additional risk factors for type 2 diabetes and heart disease. And again, if you look in the literature, you're going to find a whole bunch of different health organizations with various different recommendations on how to diagnose somebody and the criteria for diagnosing people with metabolic syndrome. But that is by far the one that's most commonly used. So for this ATP3 criteria, you need to have three or more of the following five traits. So Trait number one, abdominal obesity defined as a waist circumference of greater than 102 centimeters or 40 inches in men or greater than 88 centimeters, which is 35 inches in females. Criteria number two, serum triglycerides greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter, which is 1.7 millimoles per liter or drug treatment for elevated triglycerides. Like if you were on azetamibe or something like that. Uh, serum high density lipoprotein. This is criteria number three. So that's HDL cholesterol less than 40 milligrams per deciliter in males and less than 50 milligrams per deciliter in females, or again, drug treatment for low HDL, which isn't really a thing that's done too much anymore, but these (laughs) criteria were came up with back when people were still using things like niacin and stuff like that. So yeah. Uh, criteria number four is a blood pressure greater than 130 systolic. That's the top number over 85 millimeters of mercury. That's diastolic, the lower number, uh, or drug treatment for elevated blood pressure. And then finally, the fifth criteria is a fasting plasma glucose. So fasting plasma blood sugar of greater than hundred milligrams per deciliter or 
drug treatment for elevated blood glucose. And so again, I imagine you see a bunch of patients that have three or more of these quite frequently, but yeah, I was more curious as to like how many people it just summarizes metabolic syndrome, because then I, I feel like if you did see that on somebody's chart, you're like, well, but how severe though? Yeah. Like, I would just, yeah, I'd still be curious, like which ones do they have and how bad is it and things like that. But you know, if I'm just casually conveying like what this patient, this, this patient's general situation, then I might say, yeah, they have met metabolic syndrome and AFib and heart failure and things like that. But, um, for most of the time we are being, you know, specific, which with, with which components they have and their status in terms of severity and treatment and things like that. Yeah, there'd be a difference between somebody who's got three of these criteria that are all like managed with diet and lifestyle versus all of the criteria all on medications. And then you're like, okay, there's no real avenue for somebody to say metabolic syndrome severe. That's not right, like a right, known right. definition. Yeah, it's just not able to stratify it well enough. And and given how common as we'll get into this is, I would say that, you know, probably more of my patients that in the hospital have this than, than don't a lot of the time, just because that's people who have the health complications that land you in the hospital a lot of the time. So it's, yeah. it's very common and uh, we have boatloads of experience with it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so metabolic syndrome also occurs in children and adolescents, but there's even less of a consensus on the definition. Still, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome is high and increases with worsening obesity. So in a study of 439 children, Children and adolescents with obesity, 31 with overweight and 20 with normal weight, metabolic syndrome was present in 39% of uh, those with a BMI between 30 and 35 and 50% of those with a BMI greater than 35. But no children uh, who were between BMIs of 25 to 30 or were normal weight had uh, met criteria for metabolic syndrome. And so this is just kind of uh, foreshadowing like what is one of the biggest factors for developing metabolic syndrome, but it shouldn't be confused with, you know, an individual just has obesity, uh, or an expanded waist circumference or, you know, isolated increase in triglycerides, low HDL, whatever. It's just this combination, uh, of again, three or more of these risk factors. So I'm guessing that you don't routinely diagnose people with this. This is not part of your communication to other physicians like, oh yeah, this patient, you know, when you're signing off to the next physician, now oh, this patient's got metabolic syndrome and you just leave it there, but you might tell a patient this like potentially that, that happen? yeah potentially i mean i think that you know it 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 has to do with um the the reason these things are all kind of lumped together is that so many of them have kind of a shared underlying physiology uh you know issues relating to um excessive body fat particularly excessive body fat in particular areas that contributes to insulin resistance and then some of these downstream consequences and so to the extent that metabolic syndrome has this, you know, common underlying physiology, that's actually a useful thing if I'm communicating with patients who have like the health literacy to, to grasp these things, because then the logical follow-up question is how do I address that underlying cause for all of these things? And well, it involves addressing the insulin resistance, which in most situations involves addressing um, the body fat, which involves all these lifestyle things and potentially medications and things like that to, to handle it. So it's, it's useful to lump them together if we want to get at the shared underlying physiology that we want to target with our treatment. But it's less useful, again, when I'm communicating clinically or if patients just have like one of these things or, or whatever the case is. Ultimately, I do end up still breaking them out in, in most conversations, though. Yeah. So one question that immediately arises is what is the purpose of diagnosing an individual with metabolic syndrome? In other words, if this is included, how does it help? So calling it a syndrome suggests that there's some additional risk beyond the individual components, which is currently an area of controversy that's worth addressing. So one could argue that diagnosing an individual with metabolic syndrome may provide 
better insight into that patient's risk for heart disease and or type 2 diabetes than any single component, particularly in populations where there's incomplete data. Uh, so for example, trying to assess a younger person's 10-year risk for heart disease. And we just you know, don't have, if you're in your mid thirties, for example, we're like, well, <laughs> I don't really know. But if you have many of these criteria, for example, you're like, well, I feel more strongly that we should maybe aggressively manage this. Uh, so for example, in a study of, uh, 2,902 people, 55% were women, uh, 45% were men, mean age was 53 without diabetes or cardiovascular disease that were followed, uh, or that were recruited between the years 1989 to 1992. And they were followed for up to 11 years. People with obesity, but without metabolic syndrome, did not have a significantly increased risk of diabetes or heart disease. But individuals with obesity and metabolic syndrome had a tenfold increased risk for diabetes and a twofold increased risk for heart disease relative to normal weight people without metabolic syndrome. So again, you can kind of like stratify or better predict what somebody's trajectory is going to be based on this sort of constellation of symptoms rather than just one isolated finding. Another study of 211 people with BMIs 30 to 35, uh, their insulin sensitivity varied sixfold. Those with the greatest degree of insulin resistance had the highest blood pressure, highest triglyceride concentrations, and highest fasting and two-hour post-oral glucose blood sugar levels, uh, and the lowest HDL concentrations, despite equal levels of obesity. So metabolic syndrome is not just another like way to diagnose obesity. It's rather like, how, what is the level of insulin resistance that the person has, and how systemic is that at this time? Yeah, I think that this is actually pretty important to recognize that, you know, Obesity, particularly as diagnosed by BMI alone, you know, it, 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 it's why we've talked about BMI as a useful, you know, uh, kind of screening tool, but recognizing that it misses a lot of folks. And even when it detects folks, it doesn't tell you all the information you want. And a waist circumference can be helpful there because um, having the same amount of excess body fat, if it is distributed in two different ways between people or if people have different uh, genetic capacity for body fat storage, um, those are both factors that can influence the complications of it. So, so the way to think about it is, let's say that somebody has a certain genetic makeup that leads them to have a certain capacity for body fat storage, um, and they can store plenty of body fat and not have any consequences of that. But as soon as they exceed that kind of body fat storage capacity, that ex that additional body fat that needs to be stored ends up not where the body normally wants to store it, but it ends up in their organs, in their abdomen, in their liver, in their pancreas, um, things like that. And body and, and fat that is within these organs and in and around our abdominal organs and things like that is typically indicative of body fat that has kind of spilled over from the normal body fat storage sites, which in a lot of people is in the subcutaneous tissue around the hips and the thighs and things like that. Uh, but instead is end up ending up in the abdomen. And so the same body fat distributed differently can lead to pretty profound insulin resistance and, and complications. And in the, the most extreme versions of this, the most extreme examples are, are a set of conditions called lipodystrophies, where people have this basically inability to you know regulate their body fat storage normally. And so they can look relatively lean, like their extremities, their limbs can actually look somewhat muscular in some situations. But they can have horrific insulin resistance and cardiovascular disease and all these complications because their body does not know what to do with body fat and it ends up in all the wrong places. Yeah, or or, or the exact opposite. They have a fairly large amount of body fat that is distributed peripherally, you know, and not 
centrally in the abdomen. And it's like, well, these two people might have a BMI of 35. One is all located in the abdomen, around the organs, in the organs. And this other person, it's mostly located, you know, in their extremities, in their glutes, yeah. in their legs, whatever. And it's like, High risk versus low risk uh, it, locations. Yeah. Yep. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. So on the other hand, someone could counter that the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome doesn't impart any additional information that matters clinically since you're going to ideally manage each individual component of it Anyway, so two populations were followed. Population number one, 1,700 uh, non-diabetic individuals in the San Antonio Heart Study. Uh, they were followed for seven and a half years. Uh, in this study, they compared the NCEP ATP3 to the Framingham risk score. This is a risk score for heart disease. It includes age, sex, smoking status, total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, systolic blood pressure, and whether or not somebody's on blood pressure medications. The second population that was followed is from the Mexico City Diabetes Studies, 1,300 individuals. They were followed for six and a half years. They compared the uh, ATP3 to the San Antonio Diabetes Prediction Model, which also includes age, sex, ethnicity, BMI, blood pressure, fasting blood sugar, triglycerides, and HDL. Basically, they're seeing like, hey, does this ATP3 tool predict heart disease and or diabetes better than these existing sort of risk predictors that we have? So for heart disease, the ATP3 was 67.3% uh, sensitive, uh, whereas the Framingham risk score was 81.5% sensitive. And you're like, okay, so ATP3 is not really outperforming uh this existing risk score that we already have in this particular population. For type 2 diabetes, the ATP3 score was 62 to 66% sensitive. Uh, and then the San Antonio diabetes prediction model was 75% sensitive. So in these particular studies, in this particular populate, these particular populations, the ATP3 didn't really, you know, do a better job. Uh, but I think if we go back to our previous conversation of like, if you have incomplete data on a particular population, uh, or if you're trying to, uh, you know, chart someone's trajectory based on, uh, or stratify them, you know, based on this constellation of factors, maybe it, it's, it's useful. And I, I think that seems to be true. Like overall, this metabolic syndrome diagnosis may be useful to characterize risk when other established risk predictors are either not available or can't be used. Uh, in other words, the increased risk being suggested by metabolic syndrome versus either single variables or isolated risk estimates, such as those only for obesity or heart disease, is that metabolic syndrome's variables indicate a higher level of insulin resistance that may prompt more aggressive management or evaluation of these factors. So Austin, if you had a patient that met criteria for ATP3, uh, you might order additional testing, for example, uh, whereas you might not if you were only looking at a single variable that was available to you. Uh, does that sound? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then additionally, you know, if you look at those five criteria that you listed out, it is true that most of those are kind of already the cutoffs in, in our opinions, I think, uh, mm -hmm. with our bias are placed a little bit on the high side. So if you look at, you know, the, the, the waist measurement of 40 inches in men or 35 inches in women it suggests that there's nothing to worry about until you exceed that. And that is yeah. not the case. You know, we start to pay more attention as men start to creep up over 37 inches, for example, yeah. um, and women over 32 inches. What about triglycerides? 150? If people are at 150, I'm already concerned that there's some insulin resistance going on. It's not necessarily that I need to start, you know, all sorts of triglyceride lowering medications on them. Uh, but I would prefer that in a lean, healthy, active, you know, insulin sensitive individual that their triglycerides are significantly lower than that, preferably less than 100 if I could. Yeah. Uh, blood pressure cutoffs of 130 over 85. Um, as we know, in more recent blood pressure guidelines, more recent than the ATP3 criteria. 
that we have 120 to 129 as being described as elevated blood pressure. Not to say you need to immediately treat these people with medications, but rather that should get your attention that things are creeping up and that there may be some things that we can do to, to mitigate that. And the same with fasting plasma glucose cutoffs of 100. I think that one is probably the most uh, conservative of all of these mm-hmm. in that, <laughs> um, you know, compared to the other ones that are all kind of set at, at re- what seems to me slightly higher level. So that one I'm, you know, okay with, um, even though if somebody's blood sugar is 99, like I'm still paying attention to that, but, yeah. um, but that one is probably the, 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 the most reasonably set one, I think. So there's, there's just a difference though, between seeing a patient with one of these things mm-hmm. and multiple of these yeah. things, right? Cause there are reasons to, that you can have high, but isolated triglycerides or low yet isolated HDL, uh, for example, but none of these other things. And you're like, oh, well, that leads me down a different trajectory than if somebody's got three or more of these, again, kind of lumped together, clustered risk factors that all suggest some level of insulin resistance. You, agree. Uh, you agree with that? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, we kind of let the cat out of the bag, but let's talk about it a little further, like what actually causes metabolic syndrome. So as we just discussed, metabolic syndrome's unifying pathology is insulin resistance, which leads to the signs and symptoms contained within this ATP3 diagnostic tool. Known risk factors for metabolic syndrome include age to start with. The prevalence of metabolic syndrome increased from 11% in the 20 to 29 uh, years old age group to 47.2% in the 80 to 89 year old group in men and from 9% to 64% in women in those same corresponding age groups. So age tends to be a large risk factor that uh, to to my knowledge, we cannot yet control for. Um, this is also we get to lump in postmenopausal status, particularly if people uh, hit menopause early. One study suggested for every one year decrease in the age of menopause, like so, if it, one, each one year earlier, there's an eight percent increase in risk of metabolic syndrome. And some of that has to do with the hormonal milieu that's going on there. Other things have to go with the reduced physical activity, increases of body fat, and all of those things can tend to contribute to insulin resistance, which again is this underlying sort of uh, pathology that's going on. Uh, race is another big risk factor that is, again, to my knowledge, non-modifiable at this point. Uh, so within the same country, in the same local environment, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome differs along certain predefined racial and ethnic groups. So for example, in the United States, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome is highest in Hispanics and lowest in African-Americans with the prevalence of metabolic syndrome uh, in whites uh, somewhere between the two. Um, Weight is another risk factor. In a study of greater than 12,000 US men and women using the uh, ATP3 uh, criteria, metabolic syndrome was diagnosed in 22.8% and 22.6% of the men and women respectively. Uh, this syndrome was present only in 4.5% of normal weight individuals, 22.5% in individuals with overweight, and 59% in individuals with obesity. And that's all BMI uh, data there being used. Significant weight gain, particularly in adulthood, tends to markedly increase the risk of metabolic syndrome. So compared to participants that uh, maintained their weight throughout adulthood, so the stable weight group, those who gained 10 kilos or more between the ages of 25 to 47 had an almost two times greater risk of metabolic syndrome. And those who gained additional weight after this time period had a nearly 5x risk compared to those who had a stable weight even after the weight gain. So it's like, okay, you can either have stable weight, you can have gain then stable or gain and gain. And so you, you, there's this dose dependent relationship between weight gain and sort of risk of metabolic syndrome. Now, granted, most of these people are not gaining a ton of muscle mass throughout adulthood. It tends to mostly be fat mass, but 
yeah, there seems to be this dose dependent relationship between weight gain and risk of metabolic syndrome. Um, and so, yeah, you would track then that weight loss might reduce the risk of developing metabolic syndrome, reduce the incidence. And yeah, this is what you see for every kilo of weight loss, the odds of metabolic syndrome goes down by 8%, which is kind of interesting if you think about it, like that is a rather modest amount of weight loss, but a potentially large effect. And we're going to get into this later when we talk about treatment, but like there are weight dependent and weight independent uh, sort of uh, ways to modify your risk. And if we're talking about losing a kilo two kilos, three kilos, which again is relatively modest amount of weight loss, particularly for individuals with BMIs 30, 35, greater than 35. If you could reduce your risk by a quarter, 25% by losing just three kilos, that's, you know, big medicine potentially. Uh, so yeah, uh, body composition is another risk factor for metabolic syndrome. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the criteria for ATP3, that's why the waist circumference is there basically to assess the fat that's located in the abdomen and going back to the BMI tool that we use for screening for obesity, that's kind of its problem. It doesn't really differentiate between fat stored peripherally. So in the limbs, in the buttocks, in the legs or anywhere else, uh, it's just how much do you weigh versus how much, you know, how tall are you? Yeah. So specifically the waist circumference is looking for visceral adipose tissue, which is known as VAT. Uh, so that's fat surrounding the internal organs stored in the internal organs compared to subcutaneous fat, which is under the skin. Uh, while total body fat correlates with basically all the fat in the body, the visceral adipose tissue, so that's stored in the organs and around the organs, and specifically liver fat, seem to be the most correlated with metabolic syndrome. In one study of, the, of adults in the United States, having elevated visceral adipose tissue increased an individual's odds of having three or more risk factors for metabolic syndrome by a magnitude of 20. A magnitude of 20. And so that's, again, why waist circumference is included. Uh, additionally, many measurements of body composition were no longer significantly correlated to metabolic syndrome risk factors uh, when controlling for differences in visceral adipose tissue area. So this means that people could have a lot of fat or no fat, a little bit of fat elsewhere, but if they had the same amount of visceral adipose tissue, they had the same risk of metabolic syndrome, just showing how important this feature actually is. And this is why we made such a big deal about it to, you know, refresh people's memory or if they need to go back and re-listen or if they never did listen to the episode we did last month, I think it was on fatty liver disease. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's why it was worth that discussion because it is severely underappreciated in terms of how significant of a risk fatty liver poses in so many other kind of domains of health, not only just liver health in general, the risk of progression to scarring and fibrosis and cirrhosis and liver cancer in the liver, but also, you know, these consequences that we see elsewhere having to do with cardiovascular disease, which also can impact, you know, you know, neurological, you know, uh, risk, things like dementia from strokes and other cardiovascular complications over time, kidney, kidney function, all sorts of other things that can be impaired as a downstream consequence of this uh, initial insulin resistance, uh, the, the worse it gets and the, and the longer it is uh, dealt with for. Yeah, the liver is just one of those big sinks for like glucose metabolism and disposal. And when it gets full, it starts storing fat in there. So its function decreases. And then, it, you know, that spills over to the muscles. And the muscles are like, hey, man, we're all full too. And then you yep. get intramuscular fat storage, which 10 out of 10 would not recommend. And then you uh, meet me in the hospital. So that's also yeah, that's would not right. recommend. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if I had to pick. <laughs> sure. I think I would pick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so this actually bears like a... a you know, some, some additional discussion on like why this visceral adipose tissue is, you know, like how does it actually drive the, uh, you know, metabolic syndrome, uh, criteria here. So 
the visceral adipose tissue produces free fatty acids that go directly to the liver to be stored. There's like 75% of the circulation, uh, blood circulation from the visceral adipose tissue goes directly to the liver via the portal vein. And the liver's like, yo, man, we're all full, but you just keep dumping fat in there and it gets stored, which is strongly involved in the pathogenesis of insulin resistance at baseline. So this is why people who don't actually, you know, either meet criteria for obesity, their BMI is not that low, they could be kind of lean otherwise, can't have actual insulin resistance because their liver is pickled in a way, but not pickled like in a tasty way, pickled in a fat containing way. So that's thing one, like hit number one. And then second thing is this type of adipose tissue that's located in or around the organs is, uh, it's basically an endocrine organ. It's producing a lot of these inflammatory hormones that we call adipokines that are linked to insulin resistance. And these adipokines go to all of the organs and basically cause nefarious detrimental sort of outcomes. There's like not a cool adipokine that's like lying in wait and like, Hey man, we'll take care of things. Things are going to be good. It's, it's pretty much all, all bad there. So that's kind of a two, two ways that visceral adipose tissue kind of does its thing. So again, to sum, to sum this up, an increase in waist circumference is independently associated with an increase in severity of other symptoms that are contained within this ATP3 uh, criteria for diagnosing metabolic syndrome. Uh, the next risk factor that bears uh, that's worthy of discussion here is smoking. So tobacco use has been associated with an increased risk of developing metabolic syndrome, and there's a dose-response relationship between the daily number of cigarettes smoked and the risk of metabolic syndrome. So more cigarettes smoked, higher risk. I don't, you know, outside of hernias, I don't actually know that increasing smoking is, is linked to any good outcome. So no real surprise <laughs> there. Uh, but both former and current smoking are associated with an increased incidence of metabolic syndrome. And the risk seems to persist for up to 20 years after cessation. So the best time to quit smoking was yesterday. The second best time is today. Even though some of these effects last a little bit longer, it's better to get that process started today. Unless, you know, you have a surgery maybe like tomorrow, in which case, maybe delay, but that's, that's another area of controversy. Uh, based on the National Nutrition Examination Survey in the United States, the increased risk of metabolic syndrome is nearly twice as high for current smokers compared to those who never smoked. And as far as mechanisms, some pretty interesting stuff. So like one, overall tobacco use period is associated with associated with inflammatory changes and in general, higher rates of inflammation, not caused by like cool things like exercise, which does cause a slight bump in inflammation, but this is a massive increase in inflammation that causes dysregulation, dysfunction generally body-wide, but also tobacco use seems to result in this hormonal cascade involving an increase in cortisol, increase in catecholamines. Those are like noradrenaline, adrenaline, and also growth hormone, which also uh, basically attenuate or tamp down or limit the effect of insulin, making it, making the person more insulin resistant. And so I texted Austin the other day, I was like, BRB jacking up growth hormone. And it's like, <laughs> when you think about it, I mean, yeah, there are multiple different ways to raise growth hormone, uh, and not all of them good. So just like, again, focus on a single hormone or single nutrient or whatever. That's why we kind of actively push back against that sort of stuff. Uh, moving on, no surprise that diet is a strong risk factor for metabolic syndrome. So regardless of the macronutrient composition of different dietary patterns, the evidence has consistently suggested that positive, a positive calorie balance and related overnutrition states uh, are the driving factors underlying metabolic syndrome and the development of its components. The Western diet, which is characterized by uh, overnutrition, so eating too many calories, and high amounts of red meat, 
fat, particularly saturated fat from red meat and processed carbohydrates is associated with an increased risk. So for example, in the standard westernized diet, which should not be confused with the nutrition guidelines because effectively no one is meeting the current nutrition guidelines, which does recommend lean proteins, lots of plant foods, lots of fiber, et cetera. Nobody, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, what people actually eat, which is nowhere near the current guidelines. Um, so di- the, the, the Western diet tends to be high in added sugars, which tends to drive overconsumption because these aren't very satiating or filling. Uh, and sugar sweetened beverages in particular are a strong risk factor because again, we don't compensate for liquid calories that well. You drink 250 calories from a sugar sweetened beverage, or if it's a Starbucks grande mocha frappuccino, that's a 800 calorie gut bomb. Well, that's 800 calories that you're still going to eat in addition to that later on. So it's like two hits there. Same thing. Uh, so overconsumption that just leads to an increase in body fat and body weight. Uh, our diets are typically high in sodium. About 96% of the United States adult population consumes more than the recommended amount of sodium and consuming too much sodium. There tends to be this dose dependent relationship between sodium consumption and blood pressure, which again is one of the risk factors or risk criteria for this ATP3 uh, diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Um, high saturated fat, uh, tends to be a, another risk factor. And we know that when we replace that with monounsaturated and or polyunsaturated fats, uh, this produces beneficial effects as far as lowering um, LDL, uh, lowering triglycerides, and blood pressure decreases all of these things. Um, diets high in saturated fat tend to actually increase intracellular storage of fat, um, particularly in the liver and skeletal muscle tissue, which are your two main glucose sinks. And so if you increase insulin resistance, in the liver, in the muscle, you're basically setting yourself up for metabolic syndrome. So diets high in saturated fat tend to do that more than diets that have the same amount of fat, but from monounsaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats. And so this is another one of those things where people are like, saturated fat's fine for you. It's like, well, the poison's in the dose here, right? And then also there's some nuance with where you get this saturated fat from. If it's from milk, eh, we don't, I don't really care about that. But if it's from butter, if it's from red meat, other sort of sources, uh, particularly processed foods, I, f- I feel a little bit more strongly about that. And, and even if, if somebody is not experiencing an overt negative effect from its consumption, that does not rule out the possibility that they may stand to benefit from replacing it with something else. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to yeah. feel this. You're not going to feel like, oh, my, my liver's feeling a little full of the old uh, fat there. I yeah. wonder. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is what, these are one of those things. It's not, it's not really dangerous in the short term. So like one day you go out to dinner, for example, with Lorraine and you have a big steak. Well, right. you might've outkicked your coverage with respect to the saturated fat for what you need for the day. <laughs> not but sweating that. Yeah. The rest of the week, if you did that every day, that would be a problem. If you did that every day of the month, that'd be a bigger problem. Years and Mm -hmm. decades. Yep. Exactly. Uh, But overall energy balance is the key here. And that plays, that's a central role in inducing or preventing and treating metabolic syndrome states of overnutrition eating too many calories, increases body weight, increases body fat. And again, increases in body fat, particularly in sites that are involved in, uh, you know, Glucose disposal, blood sugar disposal tends to drive this insulin resistance process. Uh, and that's kind of the, again, the root pathology uh, in these this clustered set of characteristics. Uh, moving on, physical inactivity is another risk factor for metabolic syndrome. Uh, so less energy expenditure from activity 
yields more potential energy expenditure for inflammatory processes underlying insulin resistance. When I talked with Dr. Herman Ponzer on our podcast, uh, he was pretty uh, juiced up about this relationship. Like as you expend more and more energy from physical activity, particularly exercise, you're basically giving you're allowing less potential energy to be expended for nefarious processes like inflammation. And so this sort of throughput of energy expenditure is important, like where it's coming from. You're expending roughly the same amount of energy on a given day. Uh, but if more of it's coming from exercise, there's just less available energy to, you know, do bad things. Um, also, there are anti-inflammatory effects from exercise. So exercise while you're doing it in and of itself is relatively inflammatory. It doesn't, you know, really, it's not the same as smoking. Certainly it's not the same as like being involved in trauma or uh, something like that, or a autoimmune disease. But uh, while you're doing it, it's certainly inflammatory, but the net effect of exercise on the inflammatory profile of an individual is anti-inflammatory. And that has to do with hormones released from the muscles that are called myokines. They go to different organs and do cool things, but again, overall reducing inflammation. Uh, the second cool thing that exercise does, particularly resistance training, it takes this receptor called the GLUT4 receptor, which normally requires insulin to bind to it to take up sugar from the blood. And the better that insulin can do that, the more insulin sensitive an individual is. If a person is insulin resistant, they require more insulin to do the same amount of glucose disposal. But exercise, particularly resistance training, takes this GLUT4 receptor and makes it such that it does not require insulin anymore to take up sugar from the blood. It makes it more effective. So it increases insulin sensitivity in a way, uh, in, a, in fact, in a way that doesn't require insulin. So that's a pretty cool uh, effect. Also, while you're doing exercise, you increase free fatty acid oxidation, whereas metabolic syndrome causes fatty acid oxidation impairment. This is at the level of the mitochondria. So it basically makes these energy powerhouses more effective. And we'll talk about this more later when we talk about uh, treatment of metabolic syndrome. Um, two more things to go here on risk factors here on episode 218 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. The first one is medications. These can contribute to metabolic syndrome by interfering with insulin production, insulin secretion, or insulin's action um, at different tissues. So insulin is produced in the pancreas for the most part. And uh, if you impair insulin's either production in the pancreas, its release from the pancreas, or its action in other tissues, you can get insulin resistance. One of the most well-characterized uh, uh, sort of drugs that causes insulin resistance and ultimately metabolic syndrome are antipsychotic medications, um, but also things like glucocorticoids, which are steroids, but not the cool kind, like prednisone, for example, you've probably heard of, and certain other medicines like protease inhibitors and uh, tacrolimus and many, many more. Um, so going back to the antipsychotic, uh, medications, the prevalence of antipsychotic related metabolic syndrome have been reported in varying sample ranges and various samples ranging from 23 to 50%. So these are individuals with effectively one or less risk factors prior to starting these antipsychotic medications that within a few weeks or a few months of starting the medication now have metabolic syndrome. Uh, as far as why this happens, so one of the big sort of driving factors is this increase in appetite uh, tends to also alter, these drugs also tend to alter the circadian rhythm, which can have a whole bevy of effects. And so this is still an active area of research, but we know that many of these medications do cause increased weight gain, increased appetite, and altered sleep patterns that ultimately result in an increased risk of developing the criteria uh, contained within the ATP3 
metabolic syndrome diagnostic uh, panel. Um, Austin, have you seen this? I know you're not starting people on antipsychotics or whatever. I mean, sometimes, uh, but yes, uh, between antipsychotics, prednisone, those other medicines that were listed, uh, tacrolimus, proteus inhibitors, lots of those medications I, I deal with on a very routine basis. And it's really unfortunate because a lot of times patients have, you know, medical conditions that absolutely require them to receive one of these medications. And it is, um, you know, depending on the agent and the dose you choose, but it's pretty much, you know, like I might be right in the order for this thing. And I'm like, uh, I'm committing this person, I'm, you know, to a bunch of weight gain, probably, uh, potentially to some, you know, uh, uh, metabolic syndrome development, lipid issues, cardiovascular risk. And so we know, and sometimes we actually simultaneously initiate treatment for those other things up front, um, in certain situations, uh, depending on, on what you're using. But it's like, if the alternative is that you have uncontrolled psychosis and you cannot function in the world, then yeah that's something that you're going to need if you want to be able to function or somebody who has a raging inflammatory disorder that needs a lot of glucocorticoid to get it under control before their body, you know, attacks itself and puts them into renal failure from lupus or something like that, then unfortunately you're going to need this. Um, or you have an organ transplant and you need to be on tacrolimus for that. Yeah, that's a tough one, you know? Um, so it's a tough trade-off, but definitely something I see super often. Yeah. What you would prefer is that uh, on the in the instances where you have to prescribe these medications because there are no other good options for managing, that the person that you're starting them on was already at a healthy body weight, had healthy behaviors in place as far as engaging in regular physical activity and exercise, eating a health-promoting dietary pattern, all sorts of stuff. And so at that point, you're like, okay, not only do I think this person is going to be managing pretty well on their own, but we can any additional steps that we take to help them deal with these potential side effects uh, is going to be better received. But unfortunately, we do not live in that world. And so the majority of people you're starting on this are not coming to you like, yes, I'm otherwise healthy besides this, uh, besides this thing. And yeah, yeah, that sometimes happens, but definitely not common. And knowing that, you know, this increase in appetite that is going to happen on these medicines is, you know, as we've talked about before, largely outside of the person's control, then they can have great habits. And I still might, you know, expect them to gain at least a bit of weight, although it might be less than they might gain if they have terrible habits. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a tough thing to deal with. I wonder, you know, moving forward in the future, if there's going to be like, you know, co-initiation of of your, you know, injection paliperidone together with injection semaglutide, you know, a GLP-1 agonist to, to kind of counter that. Um, because as, you know, the, the most common cause of death in so many of these conditions um, ends up being cardiovascular disease. And, you know, we talked about proteus inhibitors for HIV, which are falling out of favor in, in many ways, but autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, most common cause of death, cardiovascular disease. Schizophrenia, extremely high rates of cardiovascular disease. Also extremely high rates of smoking um, in, that, in that population. Um, and so, so I think that, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up attacking all of this a lot more aggressively in the future with some of the better tools we have nowadays for, for managing obesity. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to touch on as far as risk factors go is genetics. So the genetic predisposition may explain why lean subjects, Southern, such as Southern Asian ethnic groups or metabolically healthy individuals with obesity, uh, are more prone to developing metabolic syndrome than others. Uh, it's just you know, this, there's a high amount of heritability. So the way it's passed on from generation to generation. So in fact, there's a actually a pretty decent amount of twin studies where they follow either identical twins, which are called monozygotic twins or fraternal twins who are basically, again, conceived at the same time, but basically are not genetically identical. And so 
if one of these identical twins has metabolic syndrome, it is far, 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 I cannot emphasize this enough, far more likely for the other twin to also be diagnosed with metabolic syndrome than individuals who were born at the same time, but ultimately don't share the exact same DNA. So very, very heritable, strong genetic component. Also much more common in offspring with parents who have metabolic syndrome. So yes, there's a role of the environment here, but definitely a strong genetic component here as well. Um, okay. So shifting gears here on episode 218 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast with Dr. Austin Baraki, we're talking about metabolic syndrome. Let's shift this over towards sport. So let's first talk about how many people have metabolic syndrome in the general population. And then how does this compare to athletes? All right. So metabolic syndrome has become increasingly prevalent using data in the United States during the period of 2011 to 2016, about a third of individuals met ATP3 criteria for metabolic syndrome compared to 22% in that same type of data set that was collected a decade earlier. So it's getting worse, more people. Now, some of this is due to obviously recognition and people actually screening for this uh, and you know more and more health data becoming available, but also just people are growing and not necessarily in the ways that we would want them to. Uh, globally, we don't actually know how many people have metabolic syndrome. However, as of 2015, the global prevalence of diabetes is 8.8%. And given that metabolic syndrome is about three times as uh, common uh, than type 2 diabetes, about a quarter of the world likely has metabolic syndrome. In other words, over a billion adults worldwide are now affected with metabolic syndrome. So highly likely that somebody you know, somebody you coach, somebody in your family has metabolic syndrome, and they may not have been diagnosed with this. And so the point isn't like to diagnose folks who have existing heart disease or existing type 2 diabetes with metabolic syndrome. It's like, yeah, like we, we already know that. It's to identify individuals who have not yet gotten a formal diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or heart disease and catch it before this happens and say, hey, you have this clustering of risk factors. We need to be more aggressive on not only evaluation, but also management. Uh, but we would expect that surely athletes would have a lower prevalence of metabolic syndrome in the general population. Uh, but let's take a look at the data. Might be some interesting findings here. So one study recruited 261 Chinese heavyweight athletes across multiple different sports. Some of these sports were open-ended. So the weight for the heavyweight division, for example, was unlimited. This is uh, common like weightlifting and judo. You can be as big as you want. Uh, and some were closed where there's a capped maximum weight, uh, like in wrestling, where the caps are 120 kilograms for men and 72 kilos for women. They used the ATP3 criteria to diagnose those with uh, metabolic syndrome. In this study, there were 131 men, 130 women. The mean age was 21, and the mean training age was seven years. Uh, as expected, the unlimited sports had heavier body weights than those in the limited sports. So for women, the average weight in the unlimited sports was 110 kilograms, whereas the average weight for uh, women in the heavyweight division of the limited sports was 70 kilograms, so about a 40 kilo difference. For men, the average weight in unlimited sports was 130 kilograms, uh, which is 286 pounds, versus 105 kilograms or 231 pounds for men in the limited sports on average. As you'd expect, BMI was higher uh, in unlimited sports, 38 compared to 37 for men. And uh, it was higher in women as well, 32 in the unlimited sports versus 26 uh, in the limited sports. The prevalence for metabolic syndrome in this study overall was 31.8%. Again, the average age was just 21 years old. So the, in That's sport, <laughs> but, and, and to, not only was it, they very, are they very young, but they've been training for seven years. So they've been very active. 
throughout the majority of their adolescence and into early adulthood. Uh, and this basically mirrors the global rate, maybe even out, outstrips the global rate of metabolic syndrome in this highly active yeah. uh, sort of population. Um, interestingly, in the unlimited division, almost half of women had metabolic syndrome. In the unlimited sports, almost half of women had metabolic syndrome, 49%, whereas 0% of the women in limited sports had met criteria for metabolic syndrome. Similarly, 88% of men in the heavyweight division in unlimited sports had metabolic syndrome, whereas 18% of those uh, men in the, in the heavyweight division in limited sports uh, had metabolic syndrome. So it's just like if it's open-ended, you can be as big as you want and like, yep, you're going to have a higher risk of metabolic syndrome, which again is far higher than metabolic syndrome rates in the general population. So let's move a little closer to stateside. Let's look at football players. And admittedly, a lot of this podcast, the rest of this podcast will have to do with football players for whatever reason. We got a lot of data on American <laughs> football. So let's yeah. check that out. This study looked at 70 college football linemen and used the same ATP3 criteria. 34 out of the 70 or 48% of this sample met criteria for metabolic syndrome. Now I know what people at home are thinking. They're like, well, waist circumference and these tall, you know, athletic men, maybe that's not a great tool, a great criteria to use. Okay. So what they did is they did a skinfold test, seven site skinfold test to assess for body fat. And instead of using just a hard cutoff for waist circumference, they said, Hey, look, if you're above 25% body fat, we're counting that as a criteria with this new criteria. 31 out of the 70 or 44% of the sample had metabolic syndrome, effectively unchanged. And again, these are college football linemen. Think of the average age here. I believe in this particular study, it was 21 and a half. And, and again, just to reiterate from what we were talking about before, this is not just measuring, you know, using these criteria, these ATP criteria is not just measuring, are these big guys? It is measuring uh, the body fat or, you know, as a substitution for the waist circumference, but also their blood pressure their mm -hmm. blood lipids, uh, their blood sugar, and these things were all markedly abnormal. Um, and again, the criteria that we mentioned are higher than I think they should be <laughs> um, in terms of sensitivity for this for this diagnosis, which means we're catching, relatively speaking, more significant cases of yeah. insulin resistance. Further along down the line. Yeah. yeah more severe. Um, another study looked at 205 high school and college age football players from the greater Cincinnati area. I don't believe Derek Miles was involved in the study, uh, <laughs> but they also used the ATP3 criteria for metabolic syndrome, this time across different positions, so not just linemen. In this study, overall, the uh, rate of metabolic syndrome was 6.8%, so significantly lower. But when you look at the different subgroup analyses, 92.3% of individuals with metabolic syndrome were offensive and defensive linemen. Uh, and seven of these linemen were in high school and oh seven gosh. were in college. And, <laughs> yeah. and again, we, we know that age is a significant risk factor. Age is not a risk factor for any of these people. This is more a, uh, uh, just a, a reflection of the body fat, and in particular, where the body fat is and how that's affecting insulin sensitivity. Awesome. Yeah, it, this is just <laughs> is just remarkable. Um, and and additionally, you know, all of these percentages again, because I mentioned that I think that um, those criteria uh, are are a little bit on the higher side or catching more advanced cases. I think if like we had our choice of where to set those cutoffs all of these percentages would probably be higher in terms of catching people who we thought were, um, you know, in an insulin resistant state and we wanted to catch them a little bit earlier on, we would probably tighten up the cutoffs a little bit and that would lead us to catch even more of these 
people. So yeah. whereas in the in the first proportion, maybe 44% had metabolic syndrome, just to make up a number, maybe that would bump it up to 50, 60% or something. And then among these high schoolers, maybe it takes it uh, even higher. Um, and, and we're arguably missing some people probably if we don't even pay attention to, you know, their, their waist before it gets over 40, or their blood pressure before it gets over 130, or their blood sugar before it gets over 100 or something like that. Yeah. So if we were going to tighten up these criteria, we'd probably say, all right, lower the waist circumferences to like 37 and 30 two inches like mm-hmm. just okay let's lower that uh let's lower triglycerides to 100 if you're over 100 we're like i don't i don't feel great about that hdl i'd probably leave the same because i just i don't know that i, I care. might not even incorporate the, but yeah the hdl being low is itself typically associated with insulin resistance and so that's not a, a bad idea just the lower it gets the more concerned i get but additionally yeah. i've seen hdls get really low in people on anabolic steroids which maybe <laughs> that's maybe that's creeping into some of these criteria too who knows yeah we're gonna we're gonna talk about that for sure and then uh yeah with the um with the fasting blood sugar I, i'm okay with keeping that the same but the blood pressure i'd lower to 120 over 80 if you're yeah. above that, I'm like, because mm. I know that 50% of people who end up developing metabolic syndrome and, and half of them bl- elevate a blood pressure when the cutoff is 130 over 85 is the first presenting sign. And so if we lowered it to 120 over 80, yeah, we might get some more false positives who never develop metabolic syndrome, but we'd also be catching a lot more people who are at risk. And at that yeah. point, you the other thing is sooner. The other thing is that just one-time blood pressure measurements are insufficient to make mm-hmm. the diagnosis of hypertension. And so you'd prefer to have high, you know, multiple measurements if we're going to get real picky. And then if we're going to get like extra, extra picky, probably the best diagnostic Ambulatory. test for glycemia for blood sugar related issues is a one hour, you know, oral glucose tolerance test. But doing that, broadly speaking, these kind of studies probably ain't going to happen. But yeah. if we had our pick, that that would be some of the things we would do. Yeah. So so one question that comes up here, because we're, t- you know, mostly focusing on heavyweight athletes, linemen, et cetera. It seems that despite this high level of physical activity, many of these athletes uh, are at risk for metabolic syndrome. So is this purely related to body size or is it related to something else? So is it possible that these larger athletes simply have lower levels of fitness compared to smaller athletes, thus adding to the risk of metabolic syndrome on top of their larger size? So cross-sectionally, several studies have indicated a greater prevalence of metabolic syndrome in subjects with lower fitness. In a population-based sample of about 1,000 middle-aged men without type 2 diabetes, heart disease, or cancer, men who engaged in moderate intensity, leisure time, physical activity, uh, one hour per week or less were 60% more likely to have metabolic syndrome than those engaging in three hours per week or more. No surprise there. The more physical activity you do, the lower your risk. The less physical activity you do, the higher the risk. Okay. That doesn't really answer our question, but it gives us, that's our footing here. So in addition, men with a VO2 max, so that's basically how much oxygen you're taking up per unit time, uh, per uh, size of body, uh, men with a VO2 max equal to 29.1 or less were approximately seven times more likely to exhibit metabolic syndrome than those with a VO2 max equal to 35 and a half or more. Okay, so 29.1 or less were seven times as more likely to have metabolic syndrome than those with a VO2 max of 35 and a half or more. The average VO2 max for a sedentary adult man or woman is somewhere in the 35 to 40 range. This assumes that they don't have any medical condition then or otherwise healthy, uh, but sedentary. Uh, It tends to be lower in women and in minorities, but still. Uh, High school and college linemen VO2 max averages are 32.8 
whereas non-linemen averaged 40.8. So it's not like these high school college or these high school and college football players that are linemen have like, oh, they're just really fit, uh, you know, so maybe this is a spurious finding. No, they also have low levels of VO2 max that's trending towards an increased risk of metabolic syndrome. Another study showed that metabolic syndrome correlated to aerobic fitness capacity with those able to achieve a maximal met level of 11 or higher. So this is like very fast biking at somewhere between 16 to 19 miles an hour. Uh, although it should be noted that you can't be drafting to achieve your speed. <laughs> they make that sp uh, very specific. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, rowing very vigorously at about a 200 watts worth of effort, which can confirm that is a fairly high effort or dragging a large game carcass. For example, these are all specifics <laughs> from the 2011 <laughs> Met Compendium that is freely available online. At least it wasn't like dragging two, you know, dead human bodies or something. <laughs> right. like yeah, it's just large game. Yeah, yeah. Hypothetically. Hypothetically asking for a friend. Uh, the prevalence of metabolic syndrome was one quarter to one third of that uh, in individuals who could attain this level of aerobic uh, capacity. It was a quarter to a third less uh, than those who could not achieve. Uh, so it's like if you have a higher level of aerobic fitness, yeah, your risk goes down significantly. Uh, and I don't know that these college and high school football linemen would necessarily be able to do an 11 met activity for a sustained period of time because they, they don't have to yeah more more on that shortly um so even if the bmi is high an increase in fitness reduces the prevalence of metabolic syndrome by about half for moderately fit and 75 percent for those who are highly fit based on a vo2 max and to be honest the when they classify people with moderate or high levels of fitness based on vo2 max these are not actually that high. So a moderate level of fitness based on VO2 max is somewhere in the 20th to 59th percentile. That's not, that's at your average or slightly below average. And 60th percentile is again, not that high. It's effectively a modestly trained individual. And so that's even if the BMI is high. So theoretically, if you had a lineman who increased their aerobic fitness, you could reduce the risk of metabolic syndrome. We'll get to more on that at the end of this podcast. From this, it seems that increased fitness could significantly reduce the risk of metabolic syndrome in both athletes and the general population independently of the change in size. More on this in a bit, but what about muscle strength? Does muscular strength play a role in the risk of metabolic syndrome? Uh, a study using the data from the Aerobics Center Longitudinal Study, ACLS, uh, which is the same study we actually discussed in episode 203. That's the one where we we're like, how strong do you have to be to reduce risk of mortality? Uh, I linked that in the description below. Showed that each of the five metabolic syndrome components was inversely associated with muscular strength as determined by one rep max bench press and leg press when adjusted for age and smoking status. 75% uh, reduction in risk in those with the highest strength compared with those with the lowest quartile, lowest fourth for muscle strength. And again, the average strength in the highest quartile was not really that strong. We're talking about like on almost two times body weight leg press one RM for men, a one times body weight bench press one RM for men. Um, interestingly, the effects of muscle strength and cardiorespiratory fitness were independent of each other and largely of BMI and age. So again, these are like weight independent, age independent changes. So you could have somebody who's pressured to be a larger body size and like, yeah, well, I got to be this body size in order to get the college scholarship to play in the NFL. And we're like, well, all right, we don't really have a foot in the door here to get you to lose weight, but can we reduce your risk of developing metabolic syndrome and these components thereof? And sure. Yeah. Getting a little stronger, gaining some aerobic fitness, all the stuff 
would help. And it's so like, actually doing both strength and conditioning. I mean, 10 out of 10 would recommend. <laughs> so from this, it seems that increased strength could significantly reduce the risk of metabolic syndrome in both athletes and the general population, independent from the required training's effect on body fat or mass. So, you know, gaining more muscle mass or uh, losing body weight. However, in athletes and active individuals, what appears to be uniquely risky is an increase in body mass and body fat that outpaces increases in fitness, specifically conditioning and strength. The question that remains is, why does this happen and what can we do about it? So are there significant pressures in sport and recreational pursuits leading to larger body sizes that result in an increased risk of metabolic syndrome? And this is a pretty interesting conversation. We're kind of going off the reservation, off the beaten path. Austin and I typically don't weigh in on like things that affect society and sport. We try not to wade in those waters too much, but I, I did. I asked Austin the other day, I said, Hey man, how do you, how do you feel about this? And you're like, yeah, let's do it. Not as enthusiastically. <laughs> I'm, I'm overstating that, but yeah, we're going to talk about it. So as sports continue to grow and occupy larger roles in society, I think the incentives and selection processes for sports are also expanding and becoming more specific. Uh, this big bang theory, if you will, of athletic bodies, this is popularized by David Epstein, author of sports gene, uh, suggests that the characteristic morphologies, so body types in different sports are diverging and many are moving away from the average man, this midpoint, the Vitruvian man. Uh, sports are Darwinian in a way in that only the fittest reach the highest level. While not every physical trait plays a role in the selection process, many, including size, certainly do. There's a quote from Bill Tobin, the former Indianapolis Colts NFL team. Uh, he was their general manager in 1994. He says, 20 years ago, we never felt that we'd have this many big people who could run this fast. It wasn't much further back that 250 pounds was big for alignment. Now it's not big enough to play. With advances in nutrition, weights, kinesiology, and development techniques at an early age, we could see the day when 300 pounds may be the minimum and 350 pounds may be the standard. Uh, of note, the average weight for the New England Patriots linemen, offensive and defensive, uh, was 313 pounds. That's current. So Bill Tobin was predicting this and uh, he was uh, correct. So let's take a look at how athletes' bodies have changed in one uh, in some of the most popular open-ended sports in the world. So compared to secular trends in body size, so like how non-athletes' bodies are changing, so people in the general population, many athletes' bodies are undergoing different changes and at a much faster rate than is predicted. So in the NBA, for example, the height increase for all players is over four times higher than that of the general population. For the tallest players on the court, it's over 10 times higher. So if you know somebody who's a true seven-footer, like no shit, they're seven foot tall and they're between the ages of 18 and 45 living in the United States. There's an almost 20% chance they're in the NBA right now. They're an active player in the NBA. In the NFL, BMI has gone up 0.159 BMI units per year since 1980, whereas it was 0.032 units per year between 1920 and 1979. Meanwhile, the secular trend in BMI from 186 different countries and 19.2 million subjects is 0.06 from 1975 to 2014. The NFL is over double that on average. Yeah, it's like, it's like two and a half times higher. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, that's insane. From 1956 to 2015, Division Three college football linemen's weights increased by 37.5%. 
It used to average 192 pounds. Now it averages 264 pounds. This is D3, by the way. It's compared D1, much heavier, professional football players, much heavier. And it's funny, it's funny just thinking that I'm, because I'm 192 pounds, imagining myself as a D3 college football player. Yeah, 1956. Feels, feels insane. But I guess in 1956. In 1956, I, I would have been a stud. It. Yeah. In 2015, you, yeah, you might be a uh, yeah. kicker. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but you compare that increase of 37.5% to 12% over the same time period in age, sex, and geographically matched controls in the general public. By 2014, more than 90% of these offensive linemen had BMI values exceeding 30, and more than a third exceeded 35. So individuals with obesity, that's how they would be diagnosed. These values are about three times as high as controls, where 31% of the non uh, lineman population, you know, non-athletic population had a BMI of 30 or greater, and only 10% had a BMI of 35 or greater. Of note, these were Division three college football players, like I said, who tend to be considerably smaller uh, than Division one and professional linemen uh, who tend to have average weights in excess of 300 pounds. But not all sports are favoring larger participants. In fact, some sports tend to select for smaller athletes. Uh, one sport to consider here is women's gymnastics teams. So in the U.S., the average BMI decreased from 21.3 in 1956 to 17.6 in 1992 and 18.4 in 1996. Of note, there was a rule change in 1997 that raised the minimum age to compete internationally. It was 15 up until 1980. It was previously 14 prior to that. That's why you see some of those really low BMIs. It was raised to 16. Since then, the average BMIs have gone up to about 20. And in these athletes, BMI is still much different than what's happening in the non-athletic population. In the United States, the current average BMI is just over 26 right now, much lower in gymnastics. Similar findings for height and weight in sport have been shown across 22 different sports since 1970. The big get bigger, the small get smaller, and the freaks get freakier. This, again, this big bang of athletic bodies are selecting with various pressures, depending on incentives, societal impact, uh, and whatever, uh, to choose for, again, the most divergent body types. So we'll save the discussion regarding the potential risks of selecting for smaller body sizes for another podcast. That's a whole thing we're going to have to unpack. But the detriments for the pressure for increasing body weight are pretty clear. Increased risk of cardiometabolic disease increased risk of the laundry list of body fat related chronic diseases. So whether it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, whether it's polycystic ovarian syndrome, whether it's low testosterone, whether it's infertility, whether it's sleep apnea, whether, I mean, cancer, uh, various types. Look, it's a, there's a lot. I think there's over 200 obesity related sort of diseases that have been associated uh, with that process. Increased risk of body dysmorphia, Increased rate of anabolic, anabolic agent use to achieve these body sizes. Uh, there's a whole bevy of things that are going on here. There's obviously not a single solution for this complex problem, though considerations of changes to various sports policies, like we saw in gymnastics, meaningful health promotion within sport, like, hey, do your cardio too, and increased monitoring to help identify and then allocate resources towards those who are on harmful trajectories may help. Now, I know what you guys are at home are thinking. You're like, Jordan, how do you know all this? Like, were you involved in collegiate football? Obviously not. I'm five foot ten and a half. When I graduated college, I was like 200 pounds. Like, nobody's recruiting me. Okay. I'm not specific, very fast. Um, but the idea here is you see these trajectories being identified in the literature, and you're like, well, what sort of things are going on at the level 
of the uh, team physician or physicians or the healthcare staff. It's like, oh, you got an injury? Yes, they actively will treat that, manage that, try to get the person to return to play when it's appropriate. But what about just general health? Like, hey, we see your BMI, we see your body fat. Let's assess for some of these other risk factors to see if you're on this trajectory that would lead towards big time problems later on. And then what we should do about that, whether it's getting more tests, whether it's allocating uh, different resources for a more health promoting dietary pattern, more exercise, et cetera. Uh, those things are not happening in sport. Yeah, I suspect that some of this stuff is maybe happening or is more accessible at the professional um, athlete level. But but I'm thinking more about like less resource rich um, and and uh, incentivized uh, uh, kind of realms where there's not millions and millions and millions of dollars on the line. Um, but even in professional sport, it may not be happening to the extent that it that it should. But definitely at like the collegiate level, having been a collegiate athlete, and then at the high school level, also, you know, at, at that level too, I, I am not getting the sense that these individuals are, are being monitored outside of whatever regular doctor they might see if they see one at all. You know, to check a, a, an, an O-line uh, a player who, who weighs, you know, 150 kilos or something to like check his blood lipids or his blood pressure over the course of a season or something. I don't get the sense that, sense that that's happening. And then, you know, uh, that down the line, if he's to end up having a, you know, a heart attack or, or dying prematurely at, you know, in his fifties or forties or something like that would not be a shock with that kind of, uh, you know, disease burden starting in his teenage years, as you found in some of those high school athletes. So something that should be probably done, but I'm, but I'm not aware of any kind of like structure in place to do that outside of like high schoolers seeing a pediatrician, which is up to their parents more than it is up to anybody else. Yeah. I mean, usually you got to do, you know, pre-participation screening. So some sort of pre-sport sort of evaluation by a physician to clear you to participate. And there's all sorts of controversies around that. Like, should they get an EKG? For example, we talked sure. about that in sudden cardiac death. But what if that extended to like a lipid panel and a blood pressure and, you know, waist circumference and, you know, some sort of thing, what you would want to see is a, a large study in a diverse population showing like, we look, we identified these things early on. We were able to make X interventions and heroes the outcome. I don't know if you can incentivize teams like, hey, look, if you if the majority of your players, you know, end up having X trajectory, like we'll allocate more, a better TV package to you <laughs> or like some sort of, uh, you know, whoever the sporting organization is, allocate certain funds or whatever for that. But you'd want something like that in addition to policies like maybe there is a max weight, you know. Maybe there are limits. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds it, it might sound preposterous to the football fan now, but if you think about all the things that have been done to mitigate the TBI risk and this concern over you know brain injuries and and the downstream consequences of that, you know, how is that drastically different than the uh, you know rules and incentives in the game that lead to you know achieving these kinds of bodies and the associated health consequences that lead them to develop heart failure at age forty five or something like that? You know, like that's a very plausible scenario for many of these kinds of individuals. Yeah. I don't know that I have an opinion on like what should be done or like what's the, be you know, well, what's the best way to achieve, you know, certain outcomes, but I think you'd, you probably, need to, you'd probably need trials to tease that kind of thing out. Like yeah. what works, doesn't work, what is acceptable, whatever the case is. We can't predict that obviously, but it's just bringing attention to this and saying, these are some things that could be done potentially or studied further or does mm -hmm. an intervention actually help at all here, you know? Yeah. But I, I think we can all agree that you would want the risks of various participation in, in various sports to be well characterized. You'd want to provide access to uh, resources and interventions as needed in a way where people, uh, you know, might receive actual better health care by participating in sport than worse, you know, 
despite the you know incentives on oh you got to play you got to get bigger you got to do this and and those pressures uh happen in isolation outside of the context of like general health promotion uh so i think people can all agree on that but as far as how you achieve those things uh, we're going to require a lot bigger brains than than just our two the particularly with more experience and uh, in different facets you know we're like doctor nerds we're like yeah we don't want our patients to have an unwanted outcome but you'd also want you know, other professionals involved. So, all right, now that we have a better understanding of what metabolic syndrome is, its risk factors, uh, and maybe some pressures that are leading to a higher incidence of this, particularly in heavyweight athletes, what do we do about it in the general population and in these athletes? So the general population is pretty straightforward. From the clinical guidelines from the American Heart Association and the Endocrine Society, the goals of treatment include the following. Aggressive lifestyle modification, they lead with that. Aggressive lifestyle modification focused on weight reduction and increased physical activity is the primary therapy for management of metabolic syndrome. And also there are weight-independent changes that are a big part too. So just changing the dietary pattern uh, to something with less sodium, less saturated fat, more polyunsaturated monosaturated fats, less uh, added foods with added sugar, less processed foods, even if you don't lose any weight would tend to improve these risk factors independent of any change in weight. Same thing with increasing exercise. Even if you don't lose any weight, being more active, again, less energy available for inflammation, doing nefarious things, and then also higher levels of fitness. All of those things would reduce somebody's risk of not only developing metabolic syndrome, but also if they currently have it, it progressing to heart disease, type 2 diabetes, etc. And then they also recommend treating these risk factors if they persist despite lifestyle modifications, which I think is the, you know, the big goal with using the ATP three criteria in general, it's like, wow, you have this constellation of things. All right, lifestyle, let's go. And then if there are additional things that we need to manage now, we're going to be more aggressive in doing so than if it were just an isolated finding. Um, so Austin, if just compare and contrast, like how you would treat somebody with an isolated high triglyceride level versus high triglycerides, elevated waist circumference and elevated fasting blood glucose. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the isolated, uh, elevation in triglycerides, I would probably be taking a, a, a bit of a history on the person to get a sense of, do I think that this is likely to be an, some kind of individual unique manifestation of insulin resistance in this person before any other findings have shown up? Or is it possible that they have isolated, maybe genetically mediated hypertriglyceridemia, which is not going to be as amenable to all these other kind of aggressive interventions targeted at insulin resistance, if that's not the driver of it being high. Whereas if I see you know, triglycerides elevated in the expected range alongside all of those other things, I'm way more confident that this is very, very, very likely to be related to the insulin resistance. And I'm pulling all the levers I can to get that under control from lifestyle standpoint and from a medication standpoint to include both meds targeted at the lipid panel and at reducing body weight, which may involve some of the obesity medicines we've talked about on, on previous podcasts. Whereas the isolated finding, same if it was just an isolated high blood pressure, I'm trying to get a sense of, do they have a bunch of reasons why this could be high related to insulin resistance, or is it completely separate? And it's because they have sleep apnea, which can also happen in people who don't have elevated body weight or body fat, or do they have a, you know, aldosterone producing tumor in their adrenal yeah. gland, which lifestyle is not, yeah, renal <laughs> lifestyle is not going to fix that. Um, uh, so, so that's kind of the way that I would think about it differently. Yeah. So I'm sure this is a huge surprise for everybody listening to this, that we are big shills for lifestyle <laughs> for, to start out with, particularly if that's like the one, you know, if, if the, uh, met, you know, metabolic syndrome, uh, being very amenable to that, um, yeah, we're going to recommend lifestyle again. Nobody is surprised, but for athletes, however, 
larger athletes in particular, the goals are the same, although sporting pressures may limit the loss of body weight in competitors. So while reducing weight and subsequent body fat to a healthier level seems like a no-brainer, we can substantially reduce the risk of cardiometabolic disease, uh, like metabolic syndrome, in somewhat of a weight-independent manner using a three-pronged approach. Approach uh, prong number one, a health-promoting dietary pattern to reduce dietary-related risk factors for metabolic syndrome. So reducing sodium content in the diet would directly counter the elevated blood pressure, reducing the uh, inclusion of foods with added sugars in the diet. So less processed foods in general, less sugar-sweetened beverages uh, would have an impact uh, likely on cholesterol, triglycerides, and blood sugar. Uh, More fiber, more plant-based foods would have an impact on cholesterol, blood pressure, and blood glucose as well. And overall, managing energy intake to control the trajectory of body weight. Yes, uh, some individuals are going to be like fairly resistant to reducing their body weight. So like, I got to be this big to play. Like it is what it is. But we saw that you can have such a profound effect on people's risk of metabolic syndrome by even a very modest change in body weight. Somebody who weighs 150 kilos, 331 pounds, we know that reducing their body weight by one kilogram would reduce their metabolic syndrome risk by 8%. And they wouldn't even notice that they, now you're 149 kilos, you're 328 pounds. Like nobody's going to know 329 pounds. And if we do that, you know, oh, it's three kilos less. Again, you're still not going to notice that. Um, but that individual is at a substantially lower risk now just by a small change in their dietary pattern. In addition to all these other weight independent changes, prong number two would be managing persistent metabolic syndrome risk factors aggressively. So by identifying folks who have metabolic syndrome, you can actually be more keyed up on surveillance. Um, so again, if you have somebody with just an isolated, elevated waist circumference, but you know nothing else about them, you're not sure what the risk of metabolic syndrome is. You suspect it to be higher due to a high likelihood that they're containing more uh, visceral adipose tissue. So that's that, fat, again, fat in or around the organs of the abdomen. But you'd also at that point want to know their blood pressure. You'd want to know their triglycerides. You'd want to know their HDL. You'd want to know their fasting blood sugar. You'd want to know their blood pressure, like I said. And so if you're not keyed up into this, those risk factors are, you know, you don't know what they are. And so then you can't manage them because you don't, you just don't have the knowledge. This is one of those things where we'd be like, yeah, more screening (laughs) might be better if you have a clinical reason to do so. I think it'd be very weird, not weird, but unlikely for you to push back against getting a waist circumference, getting a blood pressure. Get it, and then if those tend to be elevated, like, oh, yeah, maybe we'll get a lipid panel, yeah. fasting, blood glucose, like you would do all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you just knew somebody's, you know, waist circumference or you knew none of these things, you just said they just said, no, I don't have chest pain when I exercise or play sport, <laughs> you know, and they don't have any musculoskeletal injuries, which tends to be the components of like a pre-participation, you know, doctor signing off. Yeah, you can play sport. You might not be aware. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you could miss that way. (laughs) Same thing for like sleep apnea, which you mentioned earlier. So if somebody's Mm -hmm. got a BMI of 35, high blood pressure, you're like, oh, I wonder if you have sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Not controlling that over a long period of time puts somebody on, you know, unnecessary risk for hypertension and worsening outcomes uh, secondary to that. And uh, yeah, if their weight trajectory is off the charts, they're just gaining lots of weight, lots of weight, lots of weight, lots of weight. Yeah, they might, you know, medications for weight management, not necessarily to lose a bunch of weight, but just to control the trajectory. This is like harm reduction, right? It's like, I can't get this person who wants to play as a lineman in the NFL. That's like, that's their goal. That's what they're going to do. But we can stop them from getting to 170 kilos with, you know, from 150, which would substantially increase their risk, uh, especially at an early age. If you're a high schooler and you're already, you know, at that weight. Yeah. So some in, uh, additional steps can be taken. So that's prong number two. Prong number three is conditioning. 
And again, we're just big shills for <laughs> cardio here on the Barbell Medicine podcast. So given the low cardiorespiratory fitness as measured by VO2 max of larger athletes, it seems like added conditioning is not only likely to improve per the performance potential, that's like, yo, what if the play continues for longer than a few seconds? Like you'd want increased uh, conditioning, but also maybe the hot ticket to complement the other changes we just discussed. So both resistance training and uh, aerobic training improve insulin sensitivity, but through different mechanisms. So resistance training typically increases insulin sensitivity so it makes the underlying pathology and metabolic syndrome better by increasing the amount of muscle mass. So more muscle mass is a bigger sink for sugar to go into. And so insulin sensitivity goes, goes up and also that glute four receptor translocation. So those two things are kind of unique to resistance training, whereas aerobic training, it doesn't necessarily build muscle, particularly in folks who are otherwise active or lifting weights, but it does increase the amount of muscle that you have its ability to use glucose and free fatty acids as fuel. Both of those things that when are not, they're not taken up by the muscle lead to the unwanted outcomes associated with metabolic syndrome. So the better you're, you're able to use sugar, the better you're able, uh, your mitochondria are able to burn fat the less risk you have a metabolic syndrome. And so the, those two things, increasing the rate at which glucose is being used and free fatty acids are being used for fuel, those are kind of unique to aerobic training. So you'd want to do both. So, and again, if you've listened to a barbell medicine podcast, this is kind of, we're a broken record here. 10 out of 10 would recommend that individuals, general population and athletes alike, do dedicated conditioning work outside of practice participation in sport to meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines, which is 500 to a thousand met minutes per week. That breaks down about 20 to 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per day. Uh, and I, for an athlete, particularly a larger athlete, I would not even count any of their regular training unless it was dedicated, non-specific conditioning work. Meaning like, oh, well, we had a two hour practice today. Should I still do, you know, get on the bike yeah. and do yeah. 20 minutes? Yes. But if at the end of practice, they're like, hey, we're going to do sprints or something like that. Oh, hey, you know what? That's going to count for conditioning for the day. Right. Uh, Unless your sport is itself conditioning in some manner, like yeah. when I swam or yeah. somebody who's a, you know, endurance athlete or something. <laughs> yeah. The big pushback here is going to be, oh, well, what about the interference effect? If I do the cardio, especially if I do it like right after lifting, or strength, you know, other strength training or sports participation in a, you know, power based sport, uh, sprinting, football, something like that. Uh, won't it interfere? Won't I limit my gains? So this whole thing was proposed in the 1980s by Hickson. Uh, and this, a lot of it had to do with either molecular mechanisms, like, Ooh, we see this one molecule or two molecules that are, you know, downregulated or upregulated in the short time period after exercise, which, absolutely no one should really care about because that's not really the outcome you're interested in. You're interested in if I do conditioning in addition to my resistance training, is it going to, am I going to have reduced strength? Am I going to have reduced hypertrophy, reduced power, reduced performance? Those are the things you actually care about, care about. And as far as we can tell, so long as the training load with respect to volume, intensity, and frequency of exercise are appropriately matched for the individual, those things all tend to improve. Those things all tend to improve. Let me say that again. Those things all tend to improve. That means you can lift more. You can get bigger muscles. You can gain more power, more sports specific performance because now your conditioning is better. Raising the floor of your conditioning allows you to do so much more than you used to be able to do. The thing is you have to do this in a graded manner. 
it can't just be from the jump. I'm going to do seven days a week now of conditioning because Jordan said conditioning is good. It's like, well, if you're going from zero to seven or as Drake would say, zero to hundred real quick, that's, that's too much. You're out kicking your coverage to stick with the football analogies here. It needs to be more graded. And so the way I like to do this, if the guidelines are to at a minimum, get 500 to a thousand minutes per week, which is again, 20 to 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per day. If that's the goal, I want to get there by four to six weeks in a, gen- in a sporting population or otherwise healthy population. So gradually get there gradually, not just, Oh, day one or week one. That's what I'm trying to hit. And so I think people just, they say, Oh, conditioning. Cool. Well, I like sprints. So I'm gonna do sprints every day. It's like, look, the, the middle distance runners who are people that will suffer during their sport. Okay. And if anybody's going to benefit from interval work, it's going to be middle distance runners. They only do one high intensity interval training workout per week per week because it's so hard to recover from. And I don't want to tell, you know, nocebo anybody by saying, Hey, yo, intervals are tough to recover from, Uh, but they, they freaking are. And that's why when you look at our templates, for example, I'm not like, yeah, just do high intensity interval training three times a week from the jump. Start out at, Hey, we're going to do two or three times a week of low intensity, steady state, moderate intensity, steady state, a couple weeks in one session of high intensity interval training. And then later on through our development, maybe twice per week. I care more that people are going to do it first and foremost. So like I'm willing to bend the rules here, but if I was trying to maximize performance, I would not start people with a ton of high intensity interval training. What what do you guys do in the pool? What's the hardest interval workout you've done in the pool? Oh, this is thinking back a long ways, but, um, we, we tended to do stuff using kind of, um, heart, like heart rate proxy targets. And so it was kind of like color based. It was either like, uh, uh, pink or red or blue or purple, I think were like the four ranges, like in increasing intensity. And anytime we saw like a purple kind of thing, it was like, this is going to be absurdly hard, like all out race pace stuff off the blocks repeatedly. And we might do that um, less than once a month, I would say. <laughs> um, and every and, and the vast majority was in like the pink kind of zone, the, the relatively low intensity, and then some in the red, and then even the blue, we didn't really get into all that often either. But those like, you know, all out repeat 50s or hundreds off the blocks or something like that was really, really, really rare. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you can go to the well every now and again, and there's still going to be water there. But if you go to the well too many times, it's going to be dry. And if you, you, you know, again, just outstripping your recovery resources. Yeah. At that point, the interference effect is real. It's not, it's not that you're like, you know, some molecular basis for limiting your gains. It's just your total training load is too high. And so the best way I can control t- total training load for somebody who's not very well conditioned from a cardiorespiratory fitness standpoint is doing low and slow stuff from the jump, build this base of aerobic conditioning. And then, and only then can I push on occasion, these high intensity interval training things. Okay. So we talked about that uh, with Dr. Eric Helms. I think that's episode 162. We'll link that in the description below. Also talked about it with uh, uh, Alyssa uh, Olenek. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So link both of those in addition to uh, some of the other stuff we talked about previously. Uh, Just of note, before we wrap this up, removal of abdominal fat or subcutaneous fat with liposuction, liposuction does not improve insulin sensitivity or risk factors for heart disease. In addition, surgical removal of this visceral adipose tissue, which is the doctors like to call it omental fat, uh, together with a ruin Y gastric bypass surgery. That's a specific type of gastric bypass, uh, in individuals with obesity had no additional effect on insulin sensitivity compared to those who just got gastric bypass alone. So again, together, these findings suggest that you can't just cut it out. 
that's not going to be, you need the either negative energy balance or other change in energy expenditure from physical activity, something like that to really get the benefits here. You can't just cut it out. You're like, Hey, you know what? I'm just going to send it throughout my career as a, as a uh, athlete in an open-ended sport. And then I'll get it cut out afterwards and I'll be good to go. Not, not the, move. I mean, I thought I, I, my understanding was that you can gain a bunch of weight early and it's, and it's easy to lose the fat later. I think some of our old friends used to say things like that. I mean, if that <laughs> I have were, to assume, I have to assume they're all shredded by now, but. big, if, big, if true, but considering <laughs> the trajectory of BMI's body weight, body fatness, etc., seems highly improbable. <laughs> also just the success of people who try to lose weight with lifestyle modification alone. Right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Some take home recommendations, take home summary. Metabolic syndrome is a clustering of features where insulin resistance is the unifying pathology affecting a quarter to a third of the global population. Using it diagnostically may provide additional information that can be, uh, acted upon to better predict and subsequently manage risk of heart disease, diabetes, and more. Athletes and other quote unquote trained folks get these features too and should be managed appropriately. Motivation should be tempered to gain weight, especially quickly. Don't ignore conditioning and other risk factor reduction. The interference effect is likely overstated. Anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with Dr. Baraki? No, I mean, I think this is an important topic it deserves to be taken seriously, given that, like I said, they probably more people that I see in the hospital than not have these kind of things. And just because you have some athletic uh, background or sports training, either in your history or currently, uh, does not make it impossible for you to also have all of these things. So, yeah, I love it. All right. That's a wrap on episode 218 of the Barbell Medicine podcast, talking about metabolic syndrome and athletes with Dr. Baraki. Thanks to him for coming on the podcast. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. Also check out our sponsors, Pioneer Belts over at generalleathercraft.com, Bells of Steel at bellsofsteel.us, and Viore. We got a special uh, website link where you get 20% off your first order. Really uh, thankful to them for coming on the podcast, helping us bring in use content for free. And uh, yeah, make sure you check them out. Uh, we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 